Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles, and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello and welcome back, rabbit holies. Hello, Kat. That wasn't very enthusiastic. You're not excited to be Hi. back. <laughs> well, no, I'm just, I'm just dazzled by Charles's smart, casual appearance because Thank he's you, going Richard. to a football match. This I didn't quite care. know what to wear. I'm going to Spurs versus <laughs> Man United. I've got a son who supports each. I said I could come in a compromise of a Northampton town strip, and they said I'd get beaten up by you, both sides. You're going to get beaten up, Charles, whatever you do. <laughs> You'll be instantly beaten up by both sides. Yes. Well, You're all a bit worried about you, so I hope you not let as worried us know. As I am. <laughs> it's safe at the end. Well, I nearly got... I went to Kettering Town versus Chester. Not quite the prestigious match that you're going to have, but there was a proper fight. Oh. Like an old-fashioned fight with lads swinging at each other. It's, like it's horrid when down. you see it, isn't it? With violence when it's unleashed. I always find it a bit unsettling. Yeah. Well, I've been sat at my desk writing and... <laughs> You've not, been, so I'm not, very you've not been to the football camp. No. Are you a fan? <laughs> I'm not. Well, you're finishing your book. No. You're finishing I'm your finishing book. It's a book, yes. So I've been working hard. So there we go. And falling into a But no excuses. Well. You can't say you've been working so hard in your book that you haven't researched for today. No, I have. Just I've putting got that in. Notes and notes and notes. Like I can see you've got <laughs> pages of scribbles and. Yes. Uh, Rich is travelling light again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a barely read or write. So, you know, I'm very much oral tradition over here. Yeah, well, okay, fair enough. Yeah, that's reasonable. Well, let's, let's hear it. You did very well last week. So. Well, thank you. A little patronising, but thank you. <laughs> Just thought I'd put it in. Anyway, so let's see how we get on today. So at the end of last week's episode, we were all given our subjects and told to disappear down our respective rabbit holes to discover all the interesting information we could find. 
And seeing as this is somewhere I've been spending a lot of time recently, I'm going to kick off with my topic, which is my favourite place to be, really, which is the library and oh, the yeah. history of libraries. I have to say, <clears throat> I realised I was counting. I, I kind of collect library cards. <laughs> I think <laughs> at the moment I only have about seven or eight of them, so I keep wanting to increase them. We're both so Love. surprised to hear that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's <laughs> new information about me. But one of my some of my earliest memories are going to libraries, public libraries, with my parents would drag me in in the rainy day and sit there and just rummage through, which is fantastic. But these public libraries, I was really interested in seeing how far back they actually go. And their actual public libraries or publicly funded libraries are really quite uh, recent. You start in, in the, well, in England, certainly in Britain, they um, only really start in the 19th century when you have the Public Libraries Act in 18. 50, which was actually the first time that municipalities were allowed to use public money to fund libraries. So they could do that. They had, so there's a rate, half a penny to the pound, but only if the population was uh, over 10,000 in that borough. And they're only allowed to pay for the stuff and the, and the buildings, but not the books. So it took a really, really long time. But Obviously, the tradition of libraries goes back thousands of years. And the sort of ancestors to those are sort of public libraries. We have private libraries, private ownership, some of them being set up and allowing the general public to come in. But really, it's, it's kind of 17th century when we start to see them on a big scale, obviously brought in by things like development in printing and, and mass availability of books. But the earliest ones, I obviously always have to go back to the earliest <laughs> examples. So I talked about um, cuneiform tablets, if you remember these clay mm -hmm. tablets. Can I say something? You can. Cuneiform. Yes. We said cuneiform. I noticed it last week. You said cuneiform. Yeah. And I thought, I said cuneiform. And then I sort of checked it. And I don't know, maybe it's an academic thing. Maybe cuneiform is correct. But I always think cuneiform. I don't actually know which is correct. Well, I that's quite what like you cuneiform. say in academic circles. Yeah, that's cuneiform. what I say anyway. Right. <laughs> so I think I've got enough. I feel like I've got enough authority. Is it into Scandinavian no. as well? I am not yeah. arguing. Exactly. Do, do you think cuneiform? I've never said it. I've never said the word. And I, I've studiously omitted it from anything I've said. <laughs> I'm, not well, for, I'm not up for complications. No, I think anything. Well, you're more likely to be, I've probably been, a word I've been saying wrong. I actually think Richard life. is the one I've heard more. I'm not saying who's right because I'm not that stupid, but Richard's one is the one I've heard but never dared say. We'll have to <laughs> find out. In any case... Sorry about that. That's fine. The clay <laughs> tablet. Let's go with the clay tablet. <laughs> um, so the one... Um, most sort of amazing of these libraries is one that dates back to the 7th century BC. And it's a collection of 30,000 of them, which were found in um, Mesopotamia, so uh, the ruins of the city Nineveh, which is now in northern Iraq. And it was discovered in the 19th and 20th century. And it was actually at the library of a king. So the king, I'm sure I'm pronouncing this wrong as well, uh, Ashurbanipal, can I try that again? I have no idea. I'll just say that one. Just say what you want, yes. Kat. <laughs> Which is absolutely on the edge of his seat about correct you on <laughs> that one, I, I don't think. <laughs> Ashurbanipal. But anyway, he was a, a king who was really, he was really interesting. He was really interested in learning. So he amassed all this sort of writing about pretty much everything he wanted to know about and collected it. So and his library was really well known across um, the neighbouring regions as well. And we've obviously been able to uh, decipher them now. And it's got court intrigues, it's got secret intelligence reports, it's got examples of hymns and beliefs and absolutely anything you'd find in a, a modern library, really. And it's thought that might have been the inspiration also for the um, the Library of Alexandria in Egypt, so the Great Library of Alexandria, which becomes one of the sort of most well-known of the ancient libraries. 
That one was established by the Ptolemies and the, um, the first Ptolemaic dynasty kings in uh, the 3rd century BC. And it was obviously interesting because of the vast collections that they had, but also because of what they did. It was a, a sort of center of learning. They developed things like alphabetical order and punctuation and things that we know for libraries now. And what's interesting, I think, about some of these earlier libraries is that they were very much... They weren't just there for the sort of public benefits or anything like that, but they were also used uh, as an element of kind of royal self-presentation. So this was sort of a bit of honour in having this big library, so much so that when rival libraries were set up, for example, um, the Ptolemies, when there was a rivalry and competition with the Attalids of, of Pergamon, they decided to embargo the export of papyrus from Egypt so that their rival libraries couldn't get any better than, than theirs. And so I think a lot of these private, as we go through time, the private libraries become very much about showing off as well, rather than just your own knowledge. and Knowledge is power, and right? interest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Format wars. I mean, obviously they go back to Rome. as well. Rome had, had really brilliant libraries. But in England, we do get some sources, but they haven't really been preserved. Anglo-Saxon England, we had them. We know someone like Alfred the Great who was really, really a supporter of learning and writing and books. So he certainly uh, did establish uh, some libraries. There were libraries in monasteries, religious institutions, usually where they would have them uh, initially. But were those accessible to the general public? Not really, no. So they're not public libraries in that sense. Mm. So they were for specific people and for specific purposes. Mm. So... Alfred especially does establish education to a degree, but it's not it's not for everyone. It's for for the sort of selected few, really. So we see that really right up until the the, the 19th century, which is really, really interesting. But yeah, and we, we have some other examples of the really medieval libraries as well. There's one in Hereford Cathedral. Yes, which is chain library. Lovely. Chain library, exactly, which is so interesting. So that's keeping them safe because obviously books are well, really valuable. Where the map you, Mundi, well, it tells you what you need yeah. to know about the trustworthiness of Parsons, doesn't it? They have to chain the books in the library. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, book theft was, was massive. And you see that. I mean, oh, the Vikings as well, obviously I have to bring the Vikings into it. They stole books. Yes. There's this amazing book, uh, one that's now in... Sweden, I think. It's got an inscription. It's an Anglo-Saxon beautiful book. I can't remember what it's called or what it is. But it's got an inscription saying that it was ransomed. So they took it and then they had to buy it back. (laughs) Was that to nourish their own learning or was it to have a valuable object around? Have a valuable object. They then, it was blackmail because they knew that these were really valuable so they could say, look, I've got your book. Do you want to buy it back? Vikings saying, I'm bored of fighting. I just really want to... I really want to learn about ancient Greece. <laughs> yes. I don't think so. I'd like that as well. That would be good, wouldn't it? No. Those long anyway. winter months. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just something. <laughs> but so, so we do have these chain books, and that's you can still go to Hereford now and see an example of that working to these chains. And the books had to be placed with their spines the wrong way around yeah. so that they could be fastened and kept oh kept goodness. safe there, which I think is, uh, is quite an interesting one. One of the oldest in England is probably or still used now today is the Bodleian Library, which was founded in 1602. That's Oxford University's library. I'm a member so, of that, at least. Yes. Of all the ones you're going to mention, that's about the only one. <laughs> do you ever go, Charles? I do, for research. I do, I do. Duke Humphrey's Library is an ancient one with lots of really good primary sources for the sort of periods I write about. Yeah, not the only swatty one there, <laughs> I know, I know. I think there's definitely two of us um, here, absolutely. <laughs> it's Bodleian is also, interestingly, one of six legal deposit libraries in the UK and Ireland yeah. that are entitled by law to receive a copy of every book published. Mm. 
What an ex-blessing that must be. Yes, can you imagine that? Oh, goodness. <laughs> all 650 of Barbara Cartland's. <laughs> yes. I wonder if they all keep all 7,000 Jamie Oliver recipe books. <laughs> yes, <laughs> all in there, which is very nice. Biggest ones in the world, there's a bit of a, it's a bit unclear which one it is, is either the British Library or, you know which other one? Library of Congress. Yes. So they both say they've got round about 170 million books. It's funny how they do boast about that in America. I just did a tour of the East Coast universities for my teenage daughter. And everywhere you went, one of the big stats they had was how many, you know, half has got 4 million, whatever it is. And that's a really big thing to them. It's a symbol of not just learning, but status. Our power. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it goes back to that that sort of sense of these individuals and the royals and that you having a library as that centre of, of, of learning and having that that collection. And your family has had a big library. Yes, we, we've had and lost a big library. So, yes. The greatest library in private hands. It was. It? Maybe my family said that. I'm not sure the world did. <laughs> um, but the, my great-great-great-grandfather was what's known as a bibliophile, just a mad collector of books. And he lived under the flawed assumption that he had limitless wealth to spend on books. So he was cornered by the bad book dealers of London, headed by a Mr. Sotheby, uh, who founded the uh, eponymous firm. Yes, he was ripped off royally every direction he went into, but he had 43,000 first editions, including 57 Caxton Bibles and the Mainz Psalter. So it wasn't, I mean, if you'd have them, if you had them now, mm. you'd get a new roof every year. Well, that, yes, <laughs> that would be handy. Um, but actually, no, when, when my great-great-uncle essentially ran out of money, he sold them, and they're the basis of the John Rylands Museum. Yeah. So, so do yes. you know where they all went? Do you know where they well, all most are? of them went in one package to a, a very wealthy widow who wanted to commemorate her husband, John Rylands, and so my ancestor took the view that he didn't want it sold to the highest bidder, that would have been non unpatriotic, so he insisted on them staying in England. First folio? Yes, I believe so. And you know, he turned eight ground room floors at uh, Althorpe, my family's home, into libraries. He was that obsessed. What was that always just for your family, or was it ever open to anyone else? Could people use it? It wasn't open to the general public, but I, he was a patron of arts, etc. I'm sure if anyone wanted to come, they could. You know, but he was obsessed from a very early age. We've got a portrait of him as a young man at Cambridge holding a book. And as a middle-aged man, he's reading a book. It was what he did. He had a very inspiring English tutor when he was young, and it sort of never left him. But it was a disaster because he essentially bankrupted the family. So when he died in 1830-something, he had debts of £350,000. And his son, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer, so should have known better, <laughs> thought, well, I'll clear those. And so he sold three outlying parishes which he thought had no future at all but they were Battersea, Wandsworth and Wimbledon oh, no. when they were just little hamlets so that was turned out to be not the best so the the, the library cost us quite a lot over, the, over if you stack it all up but a wonderful thing to have collected yeah fantastic so I think my favorite facts was two favorite facts when I was doing my rabbit hole research for this one, one of them was actually that the Library of Congress also has the biggest collection of comic books in the world, mm. which I wasn't expecting at all. But you also got these other really interesting libraries. There's one called the Future Library in Norway, actually, which is set up by an artist, depositing a book every year for the next 100 years, mm. new books written by authors, but they're not allowed to be read until 2114 in 100 years' time. Oh so these completely unknown manuscripts that are just locked away for 100 years. But you, 
The library in Oslo is one of the great buildings of Europe, isn't it? The new, yes, the new public library is my absolute favourite place in the world. See, it's I want to be a Norwegian cat. They've got yeah. a wine bar in their library. Well, which... for that, obviously. Yeah, exactly. But also, I love that still massive, massive investment in public ownership of knowledge and exactly. accessibility to exactly. learning and education. And for everyone. So you can just come there. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to sign. You literally wander in. It's open to 10 o'clock every night. It's right in the centre so next to the upper house. Views of the It's top. unbelievably beautiful. One. Modern architecture at its best. Yeah, it really, really is. So absolute favourite place Well, to the go. Peckham Library is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that one. the Sterling Prize. The, yeah. Well, also won the Sterling Prize for that, and I can't remember when it was. It's oh. quite a while ago. That was one of the first of the sort of more modern yeah. take on a public library and rethinking what it is, not just somewhere you go for books and go back, but actually that these are, like the, the, the one in Oslo, it's almost like a communal living room, yeah. you know, as in you would just go in, you could read, you can sit there, do whatever, but the library has that function, which I... I like to go to the library to write, actually, because there's just something about going somewhere to write, so do that, but... And I think it's perhaps life in Britain that they are open and accessible to everybody. And so sometimes you get people who might not get so warmly welcomed anywhere else because perhaps their personal habits are not yes. entirely literary, if I could put it that way. Also, yeah. the British Library, when I used to go and write there, you could always get a desk. Now it's absolutely swamped, which is wonderful that people want to use it. But it's a lot of students just doing essays. They're not really using the library, they're using it as an office, which is And fine. a pick-up joint. Oh, apparently, <laughs> it's a great place to for, to meet new friends. Is in the British Library. Now you tell me. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have a fact from our disembodied voice. Do you know what the uh, the Guinness World Record for the most overdue library book is? Is it mine? <laughs> <laughs> no, shockingly. What is it? It uh, was borrowed in 1668 and returned 288 years later. <laughs> Um, from the uh, Sydney Sussex College at Cambridge University. It was actually borrowed by uh, Colonel Robert Walpole, who was the father of Sir Robert Walpole, regarded as the first Prime Minister of Britain. Excellent. There you go. Well, Prime Ministers and their fathers. I'm going to go and There's check. One. What could we <laughs> So watch this space. <laughs> so, Charles, you're going to be next today. Really looking forward to seeing all these notes <laughs> coming out here. And your topic this week was pre-electrical refrigeration. Yes, well, most of these notes were done on the Northampton railway line this morning, so I don't know how academically rigorous they are. But what I wanted to do with this refrigeration thing, because it is quite a dry subject and a scientific subject, and I'm not a scientist. So I've gone through people to tell the story. And it's interesting how often the luxury of very cold foods comes up in history. And the first person of great note that I came across was King Solomon from about 3,000 years ago. Now, there is a debate as to whether he even actually existed, but the King Solomon of the Bible is seen enjoying frozen drinks or semi-frozen drinks while uh, during harvest time, during his reign. We know that Alexander the Great, so we're now sort of 2,400 years ago, his favourite drink was made of snow and ice and honey and nectar. And then I'm afraid we're getting into the not-so-great men of history because Nero, uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, had a system of runners to go up into the mountains and bring him ice and snow down. This really brings into question how you did that. You know, how much can a runner bring back and what was the system? And we think that possibly it was to do with transporting at night and then having ice pits on the way down where you could keep the ice from melting. It's quite an interesting thing with ice. And again, I stress I'm not a scientist, so I'll probably get this wrong. But essentially, the tighter you compact it, 
the less likely it is to melt. And you keep the surface area as tiny as possible. And they used to have these sort of ice pits in ancient times. Doesn't matter where you're looking. Egypt, Mesopotamia, Persia are usual suspects when we're looking at these subjects. They tended to have basic systems of almost like earthworks and straw. You needed somewhere for the water to drain off once it had melted so that it didn't add to the melting process. But we know that in Arabia, for instance, they had really perfected this by the 12th century, probably long, long before that. Because one of the great moments in crusader culture comes when Richard the Lionheart was on the third crusade, 1189 to 92, and he was seriously ill. And his great enemy, Saladin, Saladin had sparked this crusade by taking Jerusalem a couple of years earlier. Saladin heard that Richard was very ill and he thought it sounded like scurvy. So he sent him some mushed up fruit in ice, basically a sherbet, which is uh, where the word comes from, actually, is from the Arabic sherbet. And Richard Lionheart loved it so much that after he was feeling better, he asked Saladin for the recipe. You know, there are daggers drawn most of the time, but they (laughs) they could reach a a little um, concord over a sherbet. We then know that Marco Polo, who died 700 years ago, the great um, Venetian explorer in Asia, wrote about this. When he was imprisoned later in his life, he wrote about his travels. And one of the things, he, he dealt with the extraordinary viciousness of crocodiles and how strange the marital customs were in some parts of China. Of crocodiles or just or people? <laughs> people. <laughs> so do you know, there are parts of China when Marco Polo was travelling, he was very shocked as a, as a good churchman to find that For a woman, if her husband had been absent on business, whatever, for 20 days, she could marry someone else. No great divorce process. And so he came back shocked by that, but thrilled by the sherbet that he came across, wrote the recipes out, and it probably became the Italian predecessor to the granita. And then we see, really, the metamorphosis from a sorbet to an ice cream, or as Charles I would say in the first half of the 17th century, cream ice. And that was his favourite dish. We see it repeatedly served at the royal table. And it was after 1660 that the ice cream became available to the general public, but it was still an incredible delicacy. There was a, a man from Sicily called Procopio, and he set up the first cafe, first ever cafe in Paris. And his big signature dish was blended milk, cream, butter and eggs in an ice. So that became a very big thing. We find in America, the first mention of ice cream is not till 1744 in a letter. But then the presidents got behind ice cream, as we call it. George Washington spent $200 on ice cream in the summer of 1790, probably quite a, <laughs> a, a warm summer. And we have Thomas Jefferson, who laid out his 18-step recipe for his favourite ice dish, which was basically a baked Alaska. 18? Oh, I see. Yes. But, you know, by the 1800s, it became much more democratised. You started to have insulated ice houses. In the 18th century, they very much started in England. Uh, you would have ice dragged across in great chunks from Norway, that would be the nearer place, or from North America, pulled across the sea or stored in, inside great ships. And there are wharves in Battersea in London where they were stored, ready to be transported around the country. Because it was so fashionable, because it was just... Was so delicious. So delicious. Something. Who doesn't like ice cream? Right? You're bringing the coolness of December to July, as as Waller the poet said. So does that mean is sort of this is very much about the luxury of, of those items as opposed to using it for preservation at this point? Is it yeah. all about just 
something really special. And It is about something nice. that only you can really afford. Yeah. Very exclusive, really, until you get the democratisation comes actually with the, with the end of my story, which I'm not getting to, but once you get electrical supplies, then you can do it. So today, the American public eats 6.4 billion pounds, as in weight. Uh, they produce that in, in ice cream each year. You also have this affecting society very, very dramatically as you get frozen foods being able to be transported. We go back to the 1870s and the first French ship brought refrigerated meat from South America to Europe. And there's a very, very clever man called Sir Thomas McIlwraith, who was a Queensland businessman, who sent his brother to have a look at how, how did they manage to do this? How could you bring meat and keep it fresh for so long? And he then set about founding a, his own ship built in Glasgow, the SS Strathleven, which brought through air compressed and expansion refrigeration equipment, brought meat from Australia, and he sold the meat for 150% profit. And that was the beginning of frozen and food coming across. But Vast it was the, fortunes were made that way, weren't huge they? Huge fortunes. Yeah. And of course, huge fortunes were lost. Actually, the great landed estates of England were severely compromised by the introduction of cheap meat coming from abroad. People say it's the prairies opening up in North America. That was very bad for your agricultural arable land. But um, in terms of the meat that you were producing, this was uh, undercut by very severely by the huge numbers of beef and lamb tonnage that was coming from Australia. So we have a sort of extraordinary time where you have all of these different things developing, ether, ammonia, all sorts of different ways of compressing air. But it all really goes back to the ancient times where they realised that burying blocks of ice or snow and packing it very hard underground, it could last a very long time. You know, these 18th century ice houses, it took 18 months for them to thaw the, the contents. I had one in Findon, actually, at Findon Hall. There was an ice house there, now converted into luxury accommodation. You needed to stock them with ice from a nearby lake or whatever if you hadn't got the means to import it from elsewhere. But ice is incredibly resilient. I didn't realise this. You know, there was ice transported from North America to India and you'd anticipate only losing 50% of your ice en route on a huge journey in very hot climates. And I, I, again, as a, a non-physicist, I don't really understand it, but that is the, the reality. Someone whose job it was was to keep the ice as unmelty as possible. Well, like in the ice wrangler or something. Yes, well, in, in <laughs> Egypt, we see, um, we, we see images in ancient Egypt of slaves fanning uh, oh. water. Oh. So you can, in the dead of night in Egypt when it's cold, they could fan water until it froze. All because really? her ladyship likes a sherbet. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. There's one caught in ancient China where there were 94 men with the job of preserving the ice. Also, you could have it brought a block of ice into a room, will cool it. So it was uh, mm. early air conditioning as well. It's an extraordinarily valuable commodity in a very hot climate. Well, if, you, if you're fanning, if you have a fan and you sort of aim it at a big block of ice or a bowl of ice, that does cool the room down, doesn't it? So that's yes. presumably that same process. And there's another thing with earthenware. Again, I, I profess ignorance, but apparently if you drip water, cold water on the outside of earthenware, it will, it's not going to freeze at the contents, but it will keep it really cool inside. You butter in those earthenware crocs, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Did you know that the Nizam of Hyderabad, who was <laughs> the richest man in the world by whichever standard for a long time because he had the monopoly on diamonds, he had 1,400 servants. Goodness. 
And they did things like that. They would have like 40 of them whose job would be to curate a block of ice for his gin and tonic. And probably one to count the other servants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. because he just said, what are you going to do? Yeah. We have a fact coming on, I think. Charles, earthenware is extremely porous, so the jar would obviously absorb much of the water on its surface. And then uh, the slaves would take the jars up to the highest part of the roof where the cool night breezes were strongest. And as the wind blew, the trap water would evaporate and the wine would ever so gradually get colder. And if the wind was insufficient, the slaves would have to create an airflow with their fans. And, and that's recorded by Athenius, a Hellenized Egyptian writing in the third century AD. I can tell you something. My grandmother caused a sensation in Kettering in the 1920s mm. by having a gas-powered fridge. There's some bizarre statistic. I think in 1948, 2% of households had a fridge in England. Yeah. It was an incredibly luxurious thing. And imagine the advantage that gave you in life, mm. you know, being able to have constant resource of, of fresh food and drink. I noticed it on the way here, we came up around the back of some student accommodation. And what do you see? How do you know it's student accommodation? Because there's milk, milk on the outside. On the window, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We do that. But I, I'm really interested <laughs> in how that affects cooking and development of foods as well, because some, you know, lots of very early things like salted and cured meat, for example, that was because that was the only way you could preserve it over yeah. the winter. So lots of things that was Scandinavian food and uh, smoked salmon and all those ways of keeping that fish. And they've become now just sort of dishes and things that we eat. But actually that just comes back to you had to, you didn't, couldn't keep them cold. So you just had to find a way of preserving well, also, them. the danger of eating, I mean, I... Lovely though it would have been to sit with Charles I and be offered cream ice. You know, in the days before pasteurizing, it must have been a fairly complicated yes, operation. Exactly. Actually, that reminds me of a very long time ago when I was in my 20s, I had a, a girlfriend who sat next to a, I think it was the King of Norway, I think it was your chap, and she could see, she was the British ambassador's wife, and she could see on her so plate... So you dating the British <laughs> ambassador's wife? No, no, sorry, sorry. So, so her, her, her great aunt, her great aunt was a British ambassador's wife. And she could see at this royal banquet sitting near the king that one of her oysters was off. And she thought, well, it'd be very rude to leave it. And she ate it and died. Oh, my God. So I wonder if yeah. anyone had cream ice with Charles I and thought, it looks a bit curdled, but I better force <laughs> yeah, it down. Just try it anyway. a medal that you can get from this Norwegian king for such an act of selfless sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, well, there should be, shouldn't there? Do, do you, is ice cream, do you like it in Norway? Or like, think, oh, well, ice, whatever. <laughs> no, we actually quite like it, yeah. I mean, not obviously in the winter. <laughs> You're cold enough, but... And then I, I was going to mention my favourite pre-electrical refrigeration fact is that we have this great hero of science in Britain who's very much forgotten, well, I think so, called Sir Francis Bacon. And he was a, he was one of Elizabeth I's favourites. He was Lord Chancellor under James I in the early 1600s. And then he ran out of money and was sacked for corruption. And he dedicated his final years to what I'd call pure science, gathering data, doing experimentation, doing observational science. And he was convinced that if you packed meat with snow and ice, it could be preserved. And he had essentially a bet with a friend of his, a man called Dr. Winterbourne, that he could do this. In 1626, they were passing through Highgate in London, and he said, oh, I'll show you now. And he got out of his carriage, bought a chicken off a, a, a humble lady uh, who lived nearby, gutted it, packed it with snow, and then poor chap Bacon got very, very ill and died from a chill caused by his experimentation 
Yeah, but it wasn't Salmonella, though, was it? <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> so he probably won the, bet. <laughs> he, he <laughs> won the bet. He won the bet. But I love the fact that he was trying to prove that. But there is a spooky legacy to this story. So where he is in Highgate, there has been many, I mean, many dozens of observations of a ghostly chicken <laughs> uh, that is meant to be the ghost of the one that he did his first did experiment on. Francis Bacon. Yeah, and it, this wow. chicken has scared courting couples, uh, visiting airmen from the American Air Force, <laughs> where he chases them and then disappears behind what, a wall. Is it like a chicken? It's is a very it like large, a pale chicken. Yes, it's yes, semi plucked it's a... and it's white and it's very unhappy, oh, I suppose it would, would be. be. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, bacon couldn't be cured, if I'm allowed to say that, <laughs> and died. So, Highgate is haunted by a semi plucked chicken. Yes, this is worth. I think we're going to have to go looking for that, actually. <laughs> That's a great fact. I like that. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, that's my thing. Thank you. And then, finally, Richard. Yes. It's your turn. And this time, we've got a topic for you that was actually suggested by one of our listeners, oh. and it seemed to fit you quite well, really, because the topic is bell ringing. Ding dong. A soundtrack to large chunks of my life, having been a chorister as a boy and then a vicar as a man. So ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. Ancient history goes back, of course, thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But the kind of bell ringing that we think of today, well, two things. One, it was technology drove it, really, through the development of bells that could be tuned and harmonised. And that was a very... There's a bloke called Jacob van Eyck in the Dutch Golden Age who was... Um, a musician and a scientist, and he worked out... Before that, bells had been kind of roughly tuned by just knocking bits out of them with a hammer and a chisel, but he worked out ways of bell thickness and shape and tuning so you could get the sort of resonance and, resonance and the harmonics that we associate with bell ringing today. And there was a family of brothers, bell founders, called the Hemini, I think they were, in Holland. But it all got very exciting and very interesting in England, and it's one of the things in which England enjoys an unusual prestige is for the quality of our bell ringing. Bell making too, the longest lasting business in Britain, it closed its doors I'm afraid in 2017, was the Whitechapel Bell Foundry which was trading for 450 years, fantastic. made some fantastic bells and in the sort of 16th century I mean, bells originally kind of spread out with the monasteries because the monks who were out working in the fields, perhaps, or doing whatever they did, working in the library, perhaps it might be, were summoned to prayer by the dinging of a bell. So people began who lived around the monasteries to regulate their own lives according to the, the monastery bell. Then bells started to be rung in order to mark auspicious things, a death knell, for example. There were complicated ways of ringing the bell which would let the people know that someone had died and also would let you know the gender of the person who had died and also their age. So you could oh. tell who died simply from the way the bell was wrong. Like a sort of Morse code -y type thing. They were a way of turning out the information, yeah. And also still now in my own churches, we've always uh, rung a passing bell when someone's died and at the funeral at all, which is a mark of solemnity, I think, and also a mark of respect. But it got very exciting, really, in the 17th century when change ringing became a thing. And the kind of, when we think about church bells, certainly in England, we think of peals of bells ringing out from church steeples. Wonderful sound, although a wonderful sound that's not equally enjoyed. And there's some very interesting fights happening now between people who want to preserve bell ringing and others who think it's just interrupting their enjoyment of EastEnders. That's a whole <laughs> other argument. But it began really why English change ringing became such a big thing was because of full circle bells. So if you go to Russia, for example, the big bell ringing tradition there, but bells are hit by hammers, so they're chimes, really. And in other places, 
bells sort of swing a semicircle, if you like. Very hard to control accurately that semicircle swing. So you'll find some places where bells are rung full circle. Verona, for example, Bologna, places in Italy. But England, that became the full circle became a big thing. And what that means is that the bell goes through a whole circle when you ring it, and it rests at the top, if you like, with the bell open at the top, and then falls again. What that means is that individual ringers with ropes can control that bell, and so you get change ringing. Two kinds of change ringing in England. There's method and call. Call ringing, there's a caller who calls out to the bell ringers, six, perhaps, sometimes eight, sometimes more, who stand in a circle in the bell chamber with the bell ropes. And there are these incredibly complicated systems. They're like mathematics. They're algorithms, actually. And they are what record the changes. So you know where if you ring a peel, a full peel, for example, 5,000 changes in that, that's a three-hour job. It's a considerable job. And it's done through following these just elaborate algorithms. So you cannot have the same thing twice. So basically ringing the changes means literally exhausting every possibility you can have through the configuration of your one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight in your particular ring, if you see what I mean. So for nerds, this is why bell ringing is so popular with nerds. It is a, de it is a nerd's delight. And with the arrival of that new technology and with the arrival of these new possibilities for nerds to have a really, really good time, bell ringing became a really, really big thing. Such a big thing that it began to pull away slightly from the churches it was designed to serve. So it used to be, you know, calling people to worship. It used to be a way of keeping evil spirits at bay. It had, it had a religious job, a religious function, and, of course, you know, marking funerals. Bell ringers began with change ringing. It began to get rather competitive. So there would be organisations of bell ringers who would then challenge other organisations of bell ringers to sort of bell duels, and it got very rowdy and very long and very noisy, and in the end it started really irritating vicars who decided that they needed to impose a bit more discipline on their bell ringers because they were getting a little bit rowdy. So the tower captain was introduced, who was a sort of prefect, if you like, who, with the vicar's blessing, would be responsible for ensuring the good behaviour of the bell ringers, who by now were ringing so long and so vigorously, they were bringing refreshments into the ringing room, and that would be, you know, often beer and fun, and they'd have a lovely old time doing their thing. Dangerous, of course, as well. You can, it still happens, actually. It happened to me last week, a friend of mine suffered an injury ringing because if the bell is up and goes down and you're not ready for it and you're hanging onto the rope, you can be pulled at speed up towards the ceiling and that still happens and there have been uh, some casualties with that. But the vicar's got a grip on all this and there was one particular one called the Reverend William Ellicombe, ex-engineer who became a parson in Victorian England in Gloucester Diocese, and he then moved to Exeter Diocese, and he invented the Ellicombe apparatus. And it was a machine which would chime the bells. Each bell had a sort of chime, but it could be operated by one person, one person of pious belief and firm morals, and could therefore, he could impose a proper Christian discipline on the ringing of the bells. Never really caught on, because chiming the bell doesn't produce the richness of the sound that you'd get with a proper tolled bell, but you can still see the Elecum apparatus in some churches. Eventually, it fell out of favour, and then eventually it kind of recovered interest in a sort of general recovery of interest in the habits and customs of Merry England, and bell ringing rather took off again. And now again, it's filled, I think there are 40,000 bell ringers in England now, and England still leads the way 
in the glories of bell ringing. Well, it's such a beautiful sound, isn't it? When it's done properly, I mean, we have a, a church about a mile and a half from us, and it's when about you, the right distance. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty good because <laughs> it's such a delicate sound at that range, and yet it's it's sort of beyond. It's not musical. It's bringing the whole countryside alive, actually. I was in Knightsbridge, and we had a church clock which chimed the quarters. And there was a week when Madonna was staying at the Barclay Hotel next door. And Madonna found that the, the chiming quarters was a bit much for her and interrupted her fragile sleep. So Madonna paid for a silencer to be applied to the church bell so that the quarters no longer chime. Now, you might think that would be to have a chime every quarter of an hour all through the night to have a bell chiming might be a bit much. And so you might think that everyone thought, hurrah, hurrah, at last we could sleep through at least onto the hour. People complained. And it was when they didn't hear it that they complained. And I often find myself as a as a former vicar now, not hearing bells mm. has more of an effect on me than hearing bells because it's the absence that I notice because I've become so attuned to the bells. Well, it's myself. the rhythm of your life, isn't it? So we you've stayed at me many times, Richard, and we have a, a bell in the old stable block and it goes every quarter of an hour. And I I rather like you have insomnia. And I I get used to marking the quarter hour that I'm wide awake by it. Not not with anger, but reassurance. And occasionally, if the clock's not working, I get really confused as to how long I've been lying awake. It does become part of your the sort of pulse of your life. Can I just share, though, my, which is not a Norwegian story, but my sort of church bell claim to fame, yes, sort of please. dubious claim to fame. <laughs> One of my first excavations was in Magdeburg in Germany, and we were excavating the palace of Otto the Great, which is right next to the current Magdeburg Cathedral. And the team I worked with actually found the moulds that were used for making the church bells of the new 14th century cathedral. So they created them right next to huge, massive bells in the cathedral. So our team, we found um, these, these bits of clay. So they were oh, creating them right next door because they're so big and so heavy that you can't transport them very far. So they were literally made right next to the cathedral. And uh, we found these pieces are lovely. And you'd go in and, and see this medieval building and the church bells. Another love, sort of similar one, uh, in Lübeck. If you go to Lübeck, Lübeck, of course, was one, I think, one of the first cities to suffer area bombing. Mm. Palm Sunday, 1943, I think it was. And the Marienkirche there, which is the great church there where Buxtehude was the organist, was destroyed and the bells fell and they'd semi and then semi melted. So they broke and then also melted into this thing. And they left the bells. They rebuilt the church, but they left the bells there. And you can see them now, and they're a very stark reminder of the awfulness of war and also the necessity of rebuilding after it. So bells are, you know, important, significant symbols, of course. The Whitechapel Bell Foundry, two of the most famous bells in the world were made by the Whitechapel Bell Foundry. Can you guess what they are? The two most famous bells in the world. Is the one in the Vatican somewhere? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Much more famous than that. If we were to listen Liberty out... Liberty Bell. Liberty Bell is one. Yes. Yeah. London somewhere, St Paul's Cathedral or something. No, 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 no. We'd hear it from here if the door was open. Big Ben. Yeah. Mm. So Big Ben, which is Whitechapel Bell Foundry, and the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, I think, mm. wasn't it? Both actually broke. Both are cracked, too. And what oh. gives Big Ben its particularly sonorous and distinctive voice is, in fact, an error in its construction. <laughs> and one more thing. Actually, it's not my favourite fact. Can I get it in a minute? The Whitechapel Bell Foundry in 2001 made a bell to commemorate those who lost their lives in the Twin Towers and sent it to America. 
and it is, it's called the Bell of Hope, and it hangs in St Paul's Chapel in Trinity Church, very near the site of the World Trade Centre, and it is rung on the anniversary of that terrible occasion. What a wonderful gift. That's so incredibly sort of thoughtful and just a joyous thing to give. They also made the biggest harmonised bell in the world, which is the Olympic bell, which was used in London in 2012. And then in 2017, they went bust. Oh. They put on their shop down. All them. Excellent one. Come on, you're itching to tell us your favourite fact. Come on, My favourite bell fact. (laughs) It was believed that bells could not only dispel evil spirits, but could dispel thunderstorms. And so it's a big thing in France, actually, in the 18th century. If a thunderstorm threatened your crops, whatever, the bell ringers would be made to go into the belfry and ring and ring and ring. What this meant was a great many deaths by electrocution. Because what you don't want to be doing in a thunderstorm is ringing enormous lumps of metal high up. And because the bell ropes were wet, I think in the it was about 30-year period, there were about 120 bell ringers were electrocuted in France and caused such a stink that there was a ruling from the Parlement de Paris in 1786 which forbade the ringing of bells during thunderstorms and then the arrival of the lightning conductor made that uh, incredible such a dangerous pastime you had them springing up and down with the rope (laughs) taking the bell ringer up and then you've got them being fried just one more detail one more in Findon my old parish we had a very unique I think it is a unique distinction of having a gentleman called Mr Moon whose date of death was given as 1900 1901 why could that possibly be? I'll tell you why. He was a bell ringer, and it was the custom to ring in the new year. If you think about ringing a bell, it's considerable strain, and you're lifting your arms above your head. If you have a weak heart, uh-huh. those are ideal conditions for causing a myocardial infarction. And on the stroke of midnight, Mr Moon died, and so his date of death was given in two years. That sounds very much like a Midsummer Murders plot. Oh, Lord Peter Wimsey, I think. Shouldn't have given that away, shouldn't I? (laughs) (laughs) And I know that our disembodied voice is itching to tell us something about this as well. Itching to straighten Richard's somewhat wavy facts out a little bit. Wavy facts. They're (laughs) Um, resonant facts. The Olympic Bell was designed by the Whitechapel Bell Foundry, but it was actually manufactured at a factory in the Netherlands because the furnaces at Whitechapel couldn't provide the 23 tonnes of molten metal required to actually make the bell. Yeah, uh, you mentioned the Dutch bell founding brothers. They were indeed the Hemines, Peter and Francois. And you mentioned 40,000 bell rings in the UK. Actually, a spokeswoman for the Central Council, Vicky Chapman, said there are actually 38,000 church bells, but only 30,000 ringers. The, Campanologists, uh, aren't they? Actually, no. Oh. Well, we say campanology, but campanology is, strictly speaking, the study of bell ringing. Oh, that's not interesting. Oh, yeah. Not the actual doing of it. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. And we have reached the special moment now. <laughs> Can tense. I say, I thought both, I mean, they're all really interesting, actually, I thought. So maybe a three-way. <laughs> I know, we haven't had any sort of we shared that, ones. Have we? Yeah, no. have we? So, but let's see, disembodied voice, you have to declare a winner. Solomonic judgment to come, even if Solomon didn't need it. It is very close. We would never have a three-way, unfortunately. But unlike his football team, he is the favourite now to win the title, Richard. Yes! You had to just get that in, though, didn't you? A little did. Arsenal dig. A little dig. <laughs> Unnecessary, unprovoked. Rather mean, I have to say. Humorous. Well, so my sweetness of victory is made suddenly bitter by the sort of Kevin De Bruyne scoring a brilliant goal or two. But that's two in a row, Richard. Well, he's just trying saying. to catch up, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, I forgot that time when I feel all sweet again. The bitterness is gone. Up yours, disembodied voice. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, on that note, (laughs) let's move on. We have to discuss uh, or share our topics for next week. Mm. And this is quite a mix, as, as, as always. Richard, you'll be talking about the urinal, apparently. Very good. I'm going to be uh, talking about smallpox and Charles falconry. So there I we go. I think I caught the long straw there. <laughs> <laughs> Quite excited about my smallpox. Chicken pot, smallpox, smallpox, and falconry. It's the scenario in which all three come together is a fascinating. <laughs> one, I think we should it? try and find something that links links all of those three yes, together. That's, that's going to be our challenge, yeah. shouldn't it? Yeah, that's really exactly. maybe that's a. Let's see that that will win the prize. I think if mm. personally manages to find a connection but there we go so that's it for this week thank you to everyone out there for listening if you like what you heard today please do subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review because that really helps other people find the podcast you can also suggest some more rabbit holes for us to fall down in future episodes by sending us an email rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com and plenty of you have been doing so already and we really enjoyed reading those suggestions now we've also got some other news is that each week one of us is going to be writing our very new rabbit hole detectives column in the telegraph discussing a favorite fact or two so you can check out that every week every wednesday when the episodes come out for some more facts in the words from lewis carroll's alice only a few find the way some don't recognize it when they do and some don't ever want to goodbye everyone bye goodbye (laughs) 